0: so good to see you today good to be here to worship our great God and Savior uh, together Uh, let's go to our God and before we turn to his word let's go to the Lord of the word and and ask him for his blessing on our time here father we again thank you we again recognize that you are a good God you've been gracious to us in so many ways and one of those ways is by giving us instruction by giving us promises by giving us precious words that are written on these pages, translated into our own language so that we can read what you have to say to us. You've told us about yourself. You've revealed yourself. You've revealed to us who we are and our need for your, for your grace. Thank you for your goodness in giving us your word. And as we turn our attention to a new chapter in, in this story, I, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would give us insight into life and how... Your story, told in the story of these lives that we find in the Bible, impacts our story today. Glorify yourself in us, we pray. Amen. Well, part of our goal in this series that we've been going through is to get a view from the upper story and see how the individual stories of people's lives are a part of, of the, uh, the big story, God's story. Uh, we've, we've broken our series up into multiple parts, into different volumes, and in Volume, chapter one, volume 1, we took a, a view from above, and we saw how in the very first five books of the Bible, God, God sets the stage for us. Uh, we, uh, we discovered that over thousands of years of history in Genesis, uh, God's, and, and through thousands of years of God's revelation, there are several key events which, which we've summed up with a few, a few key words, five of them from the book of Genesis. Creation fall, flood, Babel, and then the patriarchs, which is just a big word for the fathers. And so by the end of Genesis, this family has gone from what is going to become the nation in the land of Israel later on, the land of Canaan at this time, and they've gone down to Egypt where they stayed for a few hundred years and they became, after a few hundred years, a great nation. In the book of Exodus, that nation was living in slavery to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians, And so God raised up a deliverer, a man named Moses. He led them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai where they received the law. However, uh, we saw that very soon after that, as they were on their way into the promised land, the people rejected God's plan. They rebelled against their king, against Yahweh. And so the generations, that that generation spent 40 years wandering in in the wilderness. Volume 2 which we called Growing Pains, has zoomed in. And rather than looking at thousands of years of human history and God's revelation, uh, we're looking at a smaller period of time, about 500 years. And that period was characterized by three groups of, of leaders, three groups of rulers in Israel. The first was the era of Joshua, who led the new generation into the promised land. And then the second was the period of judges, who delivered the people from foreign invaders. And then they ruled Uh, through its first few hundred years in that land. And conveniently for us, those two key words also are the names of two different books of the Bible. And then the third uh, era, the third period that we're currently considering, uh, is the century in which Israel was ruled by its first three kings. And those were Saul, David, who we're looking at today, and Solomon. It's been a few weeks since we reviewed our key words for the story, but as we're trying to to make sure we're getting this overview of the whole upper story, uh, it'll be nice to uh, just review that again, and and I'll be nice to you, give you a quick opportunity to review really quick. So let's go over the first 11 together. Uh, Volume 1 contains our first eight, and so we have, let's say it together, creation, fall, flood, Babel, patriarchs, Egypt, Moses. Wandering. I'm going a little faster than, than, uh, than the, the uh, communication probably wants to keep up through the electricity. And then three more we'll find in volume two. Uh, we find Joshua, Judges, and then three kings. Now that's not third kings because there's no book third kings, right? Just three kings. That's to remind us of the first three guys. All right, let's see if we can do that from memory now together, all right? Ready? Creation, fall. Egypt, wanderings, okay, and then we have volume two, we have Joshua, Judges, and three kings. All right, very good, very good. Well, before we return to the reign of King David, the second of the three kings, we need to go for a few moments all the way back to the patriarchs, and we need to review an important concept that keeps coming up in in our uh, survey of the story. Uh, do you remember when we were introduced to Abraham that we learned about the importance of of a term called covenants? Is that a term that everyone's starting to get a little bit familiar with? Um, essentially, these were ancient contracts, right? You, you and I, we go to the bank and we want a loan for our house. What do we do? We we sign a contract, and that signature says I make an agreement, and I'm I'm bound by that agreement. Uh, a covenant was similar to that. It was an ancient contract, but it was bigger than than just an agreement. It was bigger than a signature on paper. It was, um, it was a lifelong relationship. And, and if anyone broke that covenant, uh, that party would be held guilty. Uh, and the penalty would even be death in many, time, in many instances. Um, so the parties that, in, in that were involved, they entered into this covenant relationship. We, we have a covenant that we celebrate today called marriage. It's also a lifelong contract, right? But it's bigger than a contract. It's, it's a, a relationship. And so that same idea is conveyed in these covenants. We saw with Abraham, uh, if you remember God's covenant with Abraham, the, the incredible thing about what God did is, is he, he got together with Abraham and he set everything up and Abraham gets all the parts ready for this covenant. And then God did something very unique in this situation. Does anybody remember what it was? He puts Abraham to sleep, doesn't he? Abraham falls into this deep sleep. And God goes through the the animal parts, which was a sign of going through the covenant, cutting the covenant. God is the only one that enters into the covenant. And he does so with Abraham. And so essentially he says, look, Abraham, this is an unconditional covenant. Rather than you having to keep your part because ultimately you're not going to be able to keep all your parts of the covenant. I'm going to fulfill the covenant and, and all the requirements are on me. And, and if I fail to e- e- fulfill any part of those covenants, might I be like any of these dead animals here? Might I die? Might I cease to be the, the, the God of the universe who keeps his promises? And so God makes these agreements with, with Abraham, and he agreed to the terms of the covenant without Abraham joining any requirements. In other words, this unconditional contract with Abraham was to bless him. To make his descendants multiplied, to give him a promised land to, to the nation that would come from, from him that ultimately is, we're going to know as Israel, and, and also to bless the whole world through Abraham's descendants. And so God makes those promises. He makes a solemn promise. And then the rest of the story is going to be built on that foundation. That's, that's how important this chapter is to the whole story. God makes promises to Abraham, and now we're watching those promises be fulfilled one at a time throughout history, and and as we keep on going, that rest of the story is going to progress to the first coming and to the second coming of Jesus Christ, as God is going to as God is going to um, keep those promises that He made to Abraham over four thousand years ago. And so, when God makes a promise, He never fails. Right? He keeps those promises if. If God fails his promise to Abraham, then I have some questions regarding God's promises to me. And so can we trust God at his word? Is he true? Absolutely. And we've seen him be true over and over and over again. And so you may not know the details of every step that you're going to encounter in life, but you can believe the promises that God gives to you in his word. What he said you can believe, you can trust. And if God fails to keep his promises, then he will cease to be the sovereign Lord and King of the universe. When Israel was at Mount Sinai, uh, we were introduced to another covenant. It was, we called it the Mosaic Covenant. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to the Palestinian Covenant. Um, the difference was that this time there were, there were stipulations. Uh, it wasn't an unconditional covenant like Abraham had with God. If Israel kept their end, then they were going to experience blessing in the land. What was going to happen if they disobeyed the covenant and broke the covenant? There'd be consequences for that. There'd be be punishment. There'd be judgment. And so unlike the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant was conditional. It had conditions that had to be met by Israel. God always fulfills His promises, and and God is gracious towards Israel, and He continues to pour out His his blessings on Israel. And in fact, He keeps on keeping His promises anyway, but those judgments came, and uh, continue to have consequences. Well, this morning... We're going to come to the book of 2 Samuel, where we're going to witness some of the ups and downs of David's reign. But early on in his reign as king, we encounter a story in which God makes another covenant. Uh, This time it's with David. And so if you would turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to look at the first passage together. 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's now been king for a few years, and God has given to him victory over his enemies. The... um, the kingdom, with all 12 of its tribes, has been united under David's leadership. And in chapter 7, as chapter 7 opens, uh, David comes up with this idea. He, he's looking at life, looking at how peace has come to his kingdom. And as he looks around, he goes, you know, I'm, I'm living in this wonderful palace. I, I have this house of cedar that I've built for myself. And, and where's God's house? It's a tent. And he says, that's, that's just not right. How can I ask God to keep living in a tent when I have this great palace and and he's the king i'm just the guy who's ruling under him because god's yahweh is the king and i'm the king that's under him so maybe god should have a palace too and god responds to david through a prophet named nathan and he basically flips things upside down he says hey thanks david i appreciate the offer but the tent has been fine for a few hundred years that's the way i planned it that's what i designed after you're gone i'll have your son build me a temple however david I'm going to build you a house, not a house of cedar, but a house in which your, your generations, your descendants are going to rule over the throne. I'm going to make your name great like the heroes of the earth. He, he uses the, the Hebrew phrase, the, the gadol, uh, like, uh, like all the heroes of old. And so, so when David thought of all the heroes of the stories that he had grown up with, God says, David, I'm going to make your name like that. And now, starting in verse 12, listen to the promises that God makes. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from my body, excuse me, will come, come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men, uh, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so this passage contains a very important passage from the Old Testament that we call the Davidic covenant. After... After you're hearing that, what, what, kind of, what kind of covenant did this sound like to you? Was this an unconditional covenant like the one that was made with Abraham? Or is this a conditional covenant like the one that was made with the people of Mount Sinai? It's, it's, it's unconditional. I mean, yeah, there are, there, are, um, there are conditions in which he says there's going to be consequences here, but the, the actual terms of the covenant are unconditional. There's nothing that you have to do in order to meet these requirements. In order to to receive these promises that God has given, he'll he'll treat your descendants like a a father, and he'll discipline when when needed. But the terms of the covenant are unconditional. There are several details that God packs into those five verses, but but there were three primary promises that God makes to David and his descendants. He promises that David's house would endure forever. That is, the physical line of David is going to continue forever and ever and ever. Number two, he promised that David's kingdom would be made sure forever. Uh, that is, even though there will be times that the kingdom will not function as, as you would expect, uh, sometimes because of the, the consequences and the punishment that God says he'll bring a, as a father to the king, uh, David's kingdom will never, be perma- will never permanently end. God will restore David's kingdom. And number three, God promised that David's throne would be established forever. That is, God is never going to put away David's throne permanently, even after times that it would appear that everything is hopeless. God will continue to establish David's throne. And so, when we come to the New Testament, there's a lot of questions that have come up. We'll we'll look at a couple of those over this next few weeks. How, uh, you know, where's David's David's descendant? How is the Davidic covenant going to be fulfilled? And we see a lot of those fulfillments being made in Jesus. But before we move to the next scene, I'd just like to draw out a couple important points here. First, I, I want you to etch Genesis chapter 15 and Second Samuel chapter 7 into your brain. I, somehow get underneath your skull a little bit and write these words, Abrahamic covenant and Davidic covenant. Uh, I don't know how we do that, but, but etch it there somewhere. Put it on your brain and then put a ribbon on each one that says that says Abrahamic covenant and Davidic covenant, Genesis 15 and 2 Samuel 7. And remember those, because those two covenants, these two passages are going to impact the rest of the Bible. They're going to impact the rest of the story. The whole Bible is going to come back to these two covenants. Uh, Do you remember um, uh, Psalm 110, which we looked at a while back? Uh, All those crazy promises about a guy named Melchizedek? Davidic covenant. Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Remember the book of Hebrews? Abrahamic covenant. Davidic covenant. You remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey? Davidic covenant. All all these things that we're going to continue to see unfold throughout the Scripture have to do in part with God fulfilling His promises to Abraham and to David. These two passages... And whether or not God is going to keep those promises are foundational for understanding the rest of the story. The second thing that I I want you to notice here is David's response to these promises. Have you ever been promised something and you thought, boy, I just don't really deserve that. I'm not worthy of that. And How do we typically respond to those things? What do we do? It's not a trick question. I'm not going to try to throw it into the bus this time. I asked a trick question the other day, and then I did a gotcha, and it wasn't very fair. No. How, how do we typically respond sometimes when we go, boy, somebody made a promise to me, but I'm not worthy of this. Yeah, we say, I'm not worthy of that. No thanks. We, we try to change the terms a little bit. Oh, thanks for the promise, but let me, let me prove myself first, and then you can make the promise. We, we, we try to manipulate it sometimes, even though the, the promise itself is so gracious And I want you to notice how David responds to this. His response is bold. David doesn't miss the significance of what God promised. And look at his response in verse 26. He says, And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you you are God and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever." You see, David doesn't go, wow, God, that's, that's quite a promise you made to me. Those are incredible things. I mean, forever? That, that's a long time. Um, but, you know, really, you know, that's, I, I'm expecting too much of you, Lord. You, should, you don't have to do that. He doesn't go there, does he? Instead, he boldly says, Lord, you promised us. I'm going to take you at your word. You're going to make my, my, my throne last forever. You're going to make my descendants last forever. You're going to do all these things for my house? Okay, I'm going to hold you to it. I'm going to believe you because you spoke and you are a true God. And so Lord, do it for your namesake and for your glory. And you're good. It's bold. David recognizes the incredible generosity of God, the God of Israel, in making this covenant like he had made with with Abraham a couple thousand years years earlier. He doesn't say, "I, I don't deserve it i'm going to prove myself instead what what we see here is the kind of faith that caused god to characterize david as a man after his own heart you see when god spoke david said i believe you i trust that i'm going to follow you david knows there's nothing he can do to earn god's favor but rather than try to prove himself he boldly claims God's promises and he gives God praise for his generosity. He trusts that God's words are true and he praises God for giving him such a good thing. And so shouldn't we do the same thing though? Because we have a tendency to to do the opposite, don't we? We we hear a promise from God and and sometimes we dismiss it because we think in our minds, well, I'm not worthy of that. Or, Or God does something good for us and we think, well, I need to prove myself first. It's not that we don't want to offer Him our thanks and to live a life that would honor Him, but but rather than take God at His promises, sometimes we try to navigate around it and, and prove ourselves and, and do things that God hasn't required first. Our response needs to be the same to God's grace. And, and, and some of you are here and you're still negotiating your way to heaven even. You, you haven't received God's grace and mercy because you think, I'm going to have to prove myself to God. If I'm going to get to heaven, I need to show that I'm worthy. And my friend, if that's where you're at, you've remained blinded to God's generosity and you you are insisting that you have to prove yourself in some way. But what God requires of you is that you would believe what He says is true. Believe that God keeps His word. Accept the good gift that He has given to you through His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross in your place. And as we walk by faith as Christians, being men and women after God's own heart, first it means that we continue to listen to what God says is true, we believe it, and then we give Him praise for how good He is. I believe David gives us a, a great example that God was pleased with. In our remaining time, I'd like us to skim through another passage that deals with one of David's greatest failures, you see, David's life wasn't perfect. Uh, his reign wasn't perfect. He made some mistakes, didn't he? There's a few others that, that we'll, you'll look at through 2 Samuel and, and uh, 1 Kings, as well as um, 1 Chronicles. Uh, this is certainly, this story that we're going to look at is one of the darkest valleys of David's life. Some of you know the story uh, from growing up with Veggie Tales, uh, their own King George and the Ducky, a uh, brilliant retelling of a story about adultery for children. Um, Really, right? They do it great. It's masterful. But, but if you've been reading with us this, through the story, through the Scripture, through God's account of these things, you're familiar with the real account of David and Bathsheba. Let's get an overview of the passage and then let's zoom in for a closer look with one of the Psalms that David wrote in response to all of this. Second Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel 11, verse 1, it, it sets the stage. It establishes a setting for us. It tells us that it was in the spring of the year. And it makes a special note that not only was it the spring of the year, but what happens in the spring? The kings go off to battle. And so when kings go off to battle, where's David? He remained in Jerusalem. Something's off. Something's not quite right. David's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's not leading the people and doing what kings are supposed to do. Something's not right. His men are all off fighting the Ammonites, but David is at home. The situation gets worse when David lusts after the granddaughter of one of his counselors. Uh, he inquires after her. In fact, you see in the passage, he he's calling after many people. He's, he's inquiring, he's inquiring, he's inquiring. Um, that permeates the passage itself. But But David inquires after her, he calls for her, he commits adultery, she becomes pregnant. And it's at this point that things take an even worse turn, uh, David... David calls her husband back home, a man named Uriah. And he calls Uriah home and he decides, I'm going to cover this up. I, I'm going to bring him back home and get him out of the battle so that, so that I can cover up my sin. And Uriah will go home and he'll think that the child is his. But Uriah, we find, is more honorable than David is. And Uriah sleeps out on the street because it just wouldn't be right for him to go home and enjoy the comforts of his own house when the other men are sleeping on the battlefield. So, David decides on another plan. He writes a letter and he sends it to his general by the very hand of the man that he's plotting against. Listen to how it unfolds in verse 14. It says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Isn't that horrible? I mean, here, take this letter. It's about killing you, but you deliver it. It's just sick. Whom God had established an internal covenant with. Commits adultery. He commits murder. David tries to cover it all up. And he gets away with it. You ever sin against your God and cover it up? Maybe treat it the way Saul did? Excuse it? Justify it? Or just hide it? And it seems like everything's going well and you you cover it up and and everything just goes on as normal for a while. He marries Bathsheba. They have a son. And David, the king whom God had called a man after my own heart, starts living life as if nothing has happened and he moves on past his sin. Chapter 12, though, Shows us that that's not the end of the story. Uh, there's this masterpiece of storytelling in chapter 12. God sends the prophet Nathan, and he comes back to David, and, and Nathan tells David a story of something that's happened. Let's read it together. Chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It says, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the one poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. Did I pronounce that right? Ewe? Okay. And he brought it up. And it grew up with him and, and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, "You're the man." Nathan goes on to inform him, David, of what he had did. He recounts David's sin that, that David thought that he had hid from everyone, but now learns he can't hide that from God. He shows David that there's going to be consequences. That God has established his house, but there are going to be consequences in that house. What unfolds through the rest of 2 Samuel is a tragedy of David's life that echoes the tragedy of Saul's life, but there's some twists and turns that we're going to look at. But um, the consequences of David's sin start to unravel. His house falls apart. His family falls apart. His children are killing one another, raping one another. The passage is an echo of what happened with King Saul. Both kings sin against the Lord. To both kings, God sends a prophet. One, he sends Samuel. Another, he sends Nathan. And they call out the sin of the king. And in both passages, the prophet leaves and goes to his house at the end. And so there's this question that's hanging in the middle of the passage over David's life, over his reign as king. And I think it's going through David's mind. Because what's David thinking about in, in these circumstances? as He's watching this echo happen and unfold i remember what happened to saul in fact when we read the psalm 51 here in a moment i I think you can see echoes of that you can see words that were used against saul and david is quoting second or first samuel chapter 15. david's thinking to himself it's all happening again what have i done and so the question is are we going to repeat the same tragedy that we saw in first samuel but there's a major difference between these two accounts. A major difference between the sin of Saul and the sin of David. Both are heinous. Both are awful. It, it, from a man's perspective, d- David's sin is probably worse, isn't it? I mean, Saul, uh, obviously he, he made some bad decisions. He took things into his own hand. Uh, there were religious um, sins that were horrible. From man's perspective, though, you look at David, You know, adultery, murder, cover-up. Those are the types of things we really zoom in on and say, this is horrible. But there are some differences. Saul blamed everyone else for his sin. Saul made excuses for his sin. In the end, Saul justified his sin, said this is a good thing. But in verse 13, we witness what sets King David apart from King Saul. And here's an example of a heart that is in pursuit of God's own heart. David states in verse 13, I have sinned against Yahweh. He, he doesn't blame the others. He doesn't try to justify himself. He he recognizes that his sin was against more than the people that were around him. His sin was against Yahweh, his king. And God shows mercy to David. He pardons him from the death penalty, which David deserves, but he explains to David there's going to be consequences, and we're going to see how those consequences unfold because of the scorn that David showed against his Lord. But again, allow me to, a moment just to draw out a couple important points. First, I, I want us to understand as we, as we look at David and as you look at the account of Second Samuel, it's important that we understand that as God's people, as people that have received God's promises, are, are those promises that God can break? Is your salvation a conditional covenant that God can take away from you? That God will take away from you? We've received God's promises. But it doesn't mean that we can go on and and sin and and do whatever we want and it doesn't matter, that there's no consequences. We have to understand that you cannot sin in a vacuum. Do you know what a vacuum is? I'm not not talking about the appliance. A, A vacuum is a void in space where all matter has been removed or reduced. So the, the, the pressure is reduced. And so therefore, any particles that might happen to remain inside that vacuum, what happens to them? They float in there. And nothing that happens inside that vacuum can impact anything on the outside of it. And all too often, we approach sin like this void like this vacuum. And we decide, we deceive ourselves into thinking that what we do inside the void will stay inside. It will remain contained. We even have a phrase that we use. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And we apply that to the rest of our lives. And we say, what happens in this vacuum that I call my private life stays inside the void. But you can never... Sin, without other people being affected by your sin. When we sin, even when we think it's undiscovered, other people are hurt. Our decisions reach into the lives of other people because we cannot sin in a vacuum. You cannot sin without the lives of other men and women and children being impacted in one way or another. Moms and dads, Please don't dismiss the great weight of your private sins. Your your habits and your failures, your sins of omission and your sins of commission, they're seen by your children. They may may not watch every detail. They may not learn every, every bit of what you do, but they learn to follow you down that same despairing path. Grandparents, you have to understand that this pattern, it it doesn't end with you or, or the next generation. Your grandchildren watch you. And they will pass on those same patterns to their children and to their grandchildren. You and I cannot... Sin in a vacuum it always affects others sometimes for many generations We need to understand that the consequences of our sin reach beyond our own lives It doesn't take place inside a void There's a second point that we need to see and I'd like to let David make the point with his own words from Psalm chapter 51 the heading of the psalm Tells us that David wrote this after Nathan came to him and confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. As I read it, please note David's heart. Note the contrition. Note the brokenness which David exhibits here. Note how David responds to his sin. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. You see, as David makes his confession and he sings the brokenness of his heart, you see the desire in David's in David's heart to have a right relationship with the Lord. You see words throughout this psalm which echo back to, to, to King Saul. Remember what happened to Saul? He said, "Well, hey, I saved all these lambs and all you know, all the sheep and all the animals. I saved them so we can make sacrifices to God." But saving those animals was actually a violation of one of God's commands in that passage. And God tells Saul, "I want obedience." This isn't about, you know, oh, I just make a whole bunch more sacrifices. God God doesn't delight in sacrifices. Well, does God delight in sacrifices? Yes, He does. But in the context of what Saul was doing, he says, that's not what I want. I want your obedience in the first place. This isn't about, I can sin and sin and sin, and oh, hey, I'll just make a sacrifice here. And, And in Christian life, I can sin and sin and sin. Oh, Jesus died for me. I'm fine. And God says, I, I don't delight in these sacrifices. I want your obedience. And David echoes that conversation that Samuel had had with Saul. And he says, you don't delight in sacrifices or I give it. I, I, I could, if I could just make everything right and make all the consequences go away. And... But what God is pleased with is a broken heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, these are the things you will not despise, he says. You see, to be sure, David's sin was great. The consequences of his sin were great, and they would continue to unfold for many years. David was not able to remove them. But what we see here is the confession of David, and, and it's another key element for being a man or a woman after God's own heart. I believe that David was fully aware of the consequences that Saul had faced and how he had put himself in an even worse circumstance than his predecessor. But I believe, I also believe that what truly broke David was the possibility that God's spirit would depart from him, just like it had happened with Saul. Worse than anything else would be that the presence of the Lord and the Lord's empowerment for ministry and for leadership would depart from His life and would depart from His reign. You and I have the promise as New Testament believers who are in Christ that the Spirit will never leave us. But we can still grieve Him by our sin. We can still fracture our relationship with our God that we love and the God who loved us the God who died for us. We can still taint the fellowship that we have with him when we sin and remain unbroken over it and the joy departs. With David, our heart's cry must be, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I mentioned to a couple of you before the service that I was forgetting something and I just remembered what it is. Todd, would you mind going back to Children's Church and let them know? Because she wanted them to come in for communion. Uh, actually, Todd, you're going to be helping up here. Um, Craig, would you mind doing that? Just let Cindy and Haley know that we're going to do that. Um, there was something that was burdening me right before the service. I was I'm forgetting something really important. I told somebody I was going to talk to them after this, before the service. And it was Haley and Cindy. I told them that I'd let them know when the sermon was almost over. Now that it's all about over, I just realized that I never had that conversation. Uh, we're going to celebrate communion here in a few moments. Uh, I'd just like to note a, a few things here, though. When we celebrate communion, do you remember one of the things that Jesus told the disciples when they were gathered in the upper room? They're there for the Lord's Supper, and, 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 and he's passing the, the cup, and he says, this is the new covenant. We've heard that word before, haven't we? Do you think that meant something to the disciples? You bet it did. Uh, they're thinking in their minds, what? I mean, it was that straight here and here. Abraham? Davidic covenant? What are those passages? Genesis chapter 15 and Second Samuel chapter? Oh, wow. It's there. Um, they, they knew those covenants. They knew those agreements and those promises that God had made with, with his people. And here's Jesus, God himself in human flesh, sitting with them. And says, "I'm making a new covenant with you." And we're going to get to Jeremiah chapter thirty and thirty-one eventually, um, because that's where he talks about that new covenant that Jesus makes. And so there's this new covenant. And, and my friends, the amazing thing is that all these covenants with with David and that, that these are with Abraham and his descendants. And and you and I are Gentiles. We were outside of that. We, we're God has wanted to bring blessing to us through the descendants of Abraham, and He's done that, right? Through Jesus. And what's amazing is that we get to partake and be some of the first fruits of this new covenant. So when we come together at the Lord's table, remember that what we're doing is we are remembering the covenant that God has made with us. We're remembering that Jesus died on the cross. We're remembering that his blood was spilt out and that he rose again from the dead and we're remembering that Jesus is is going to come again he told us this I'm not gonna partake in this I won't partake in the fruit of the vine until I come back in my kingdom and so he is going to fulfill those promises and some of the things that that were promised to Abraham that still haven't happened yet completely and some of the promises that were made to David which have somewhat been on hold and there's been this period where have we seen somebody sitting on David's throne and people are wondering, hey, when's this going to happen? How is this going to happen? And Psalm 110 talks about Melchizedek and, and the Messiah. And, and Hebrews shows us that who's fulfilling those promises? Who fulfills the Davidic covenant? It's, it's Jesus. And, and that's been inaugurated. And, and we're looking forward to this time when Jesus is going to come back and establish that kingdom and fulfill the promises to Abraham and the promises to David and even the promises within the, the Mosaic covenant. And the new covenant in a way that, that hasn't yet fully been achieved. And that will all be accomplished through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to communion also, I think it's important that, that we recognize the covenant that we're a part of. That, that we receive these blessings and we're first fruits of this covenant. But how often do we violate our Lord's commands? It's an unconditional covenant, promises that he's given to us, but how often have we rejected him? How often do we sin against him? And When we come together and celebrate communion, it's not only an opportunity for us to remember what Jesus did, but it's also an opportunity for us to reflect on our own hearts. And like David, say, Lord, it's against you that I've sinned. And our hearts, as we come together today, as we reflect in the quietness of our own soul, should reflect what we see in David. The characteristics that we saw in him, number one, that he was a person who trusted God. When God said, this is true, David said, I believe you. I'm going to hold you to those promises. Thank you, you're so good. You are an awesome, amazing God. That should be our heart, that we believe him and said, okay, I'm going to trust that promise and I'll live by it. But number two, being a man or a woman after God's own heart means that, that when I sin, whoever it's against, ultimately my sin is against the Lord Himself. And that should break my heart. It should cause me to reflect and go, oh, the fellowship that I've lost here. The joy of my salvation that, that, that David talks about in Psalm 51. Did he lose his salvation? But he lost the joy. Some of you are going through life right now and you aren't experiencing that joy because there's a sin that is hindering your walk with Him. And that fellowship that comes when we walk in obedience with our Lord Jesus Christ and follow Him is fractured. And our relationship with our Father is like a child who's rebelling against His Son. And though we don't cease to be His children and that Son doesn't cease to be the child of the Father, that relationship's not right. In Psalm 51, an example that we have of David is a wonderful illustration of what it looks like to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. And so that's my challenge for you today as we come to communion. Might we reflect on what he's done for us?